Chapter Forty of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Forty. When lo, arrayed in robes of light, a nymph celestial came. She cleared the mists that dimmed my sight. Religion was her name. She proved the chastisement divine and bade me kiss the rod. She taught this rebel heart of mine submission to its God. Hannah Moore. I was younger than you, Gertrude, said she, when my trial came, and hardly the same person in any respect that I have been since you first knew me. You are aware, perhaps, that my mother died when I was too young to retain any recollection of her. But my father soon married again, and in this step parent, whom I remember with as much tenderness as if she had been my own mother, I found a love and care which fully compensated for my loss. I can recall her now as she looked towards the latter part of her life. A tall, delicate, feeble woman, with a very sweet but rather sad face. She was a widow when my father married her, and had one son, who became at once my sole companion, the partner of all my youthful pleasures. You told me many years ago that I could not imagine how much you loved Willie, and I was then on the point of confiding to you a part of my early history, and convincing you that my own experience might well have taught me how to understand such a love. But I checked myself, for you were too young then to be burdened with the knowledge of so sad a story as mine, and I kept silent. How dear my young playmate became to me, no words can express. The office which each filled, the influence which each of us exerted upon the other, was such as to create mutual dependence. For though his was the leading spirit, the strong and determined will, and I was ever submissive to a rule which to my easily influenced nature was never irksome. There was one respect in which my bold young protector and ruler ever looked to me for aid and support. It was to act as mediator between him and my father. For while the boy was almost an idol to his mother, he was ever treated with coldness and distrust by my father, who never understood or appreciated his many noble qualities, but seemed always to regard him with an eye of suspicion and dislike. To my supplicating looks and entreating words, however, he ever lent a willing ear, and all my eloquence was sure to be at the service of my companion when he had a favor to obtain or an excuse to plead. That my father's sternness towards her son was a great cause of unhappiness to our mother, I can have no doubt, for I well remember the anxiety with which she strove to conceal his thoughts and misdemeanors, and the frequent occasions on which she herself instructed me how to propitiate the parent. Who, for my sake, would often forgive the boy, whose bold, adventurous, independent disposition was continually bringing him into collision with one of whose severity, when displeased, you have yourself had some opportunity to judge. My stepmother had been extremely poor in her widowhood, and her child, having inherited nothing which he could call his own, was wholly dependent upon my father's bounty. This was a stinging cause of mortification and trial to the pride of which, even as a boy, he had an unusual share. And often have I seen him chafed and irritated at the reception of favors, which he well understood were far from being awarded by a paternal hand. My father, in the meantime, who did not understand this feeling, mentally accusing him of gross ingratitude. As long as our mother was spared to us, we lived in comparative harmony. But at last, when I was just sixteen years old, she was stricken with sudden illness and died. Well do I remember the last night of her life, her calling me to the bedside and saying in a solemn voice, 
Emily, my dying prayer is that you will be a guardian angel to my boy. God forgive me, ejaculated the now tearful blind girl, if I have been faithless to the trust. He of whom I am telling you, for Emily carefully forbore to mention his name, was then about eighteen. He had lately become a clerk in my father's counting-room, much against his will, for he earnestly desired a college education. But my father was determined, and, at his mother's, and my persuasion, he was induced to submit. My stepmother's death knit the tie between her son and myself more closely than ever. He still continued an inmate of our house, and we passed all the time that he could be spared from the office in the enjoyment of each other's society. For my father was much from home, and when there, usually shut himself up in his library, leaving us to entertain each other. I was then a schoolgirl, fond of books, and an excellent student. How often, when you have spoken of the assistance Willie was to you in your studies, have I been reminded of the time when I, too, received similar encouragement and aid from my own youthful companion and friend, who was ever ready to exert hand and brain in my behalf. We were not invariably happy, however. Often did my father's face wear that stern expression which I most dreaded to see, while the excited, disturbed, and occasionally angry countenance of his stepson denoted plainly that some storm had occurred, probably at the counting-room, of which I had no knowledge, except from its after-effects. My office of mediator, too, was suspended, from the fact that the difficulties which arose were usually concerning some real or supposed neglect or mismanagement of business matters on the part of the young and inexperienced clerk, a species of faults with which my father, a most thorough merchant and exact accountant, had very little patience, and to which the careless and unbusinesslike delinquent was exceedingly prone. Matters went on thus for about six months, when it suddenly became evident that my father had either been powerfully influenced by insinuations from some foreign quarter, or had himself suddenly conceived a new and alarming idea. He is, as you are aware, a plain man, honest and straightforward in his purposes, whatever they may be, and, even if it occurred to him to maneuver, incapable of carrying out successfully, or with tact, any species of artifice. Our eyes could not, therefore, long be closed to the fact that he was resolved to put an immediate check upon the freedom of intercourse which had hitherto subsisted between the two youthful inmates of his house, to forward which purpose he immediately introduced into the family, in the position of housekeeper, Mrs. Ellis, who has continued with us ever since. The almost constant presence of this stranger, together with the sudden interference of my father, with such of our long-established customs as favored his stepson's familiar intimacy with me, sufficiently proved his intention to uproot and destroy, if possible, the closeness of our friendship. Nor was it surprising, considering the circumstance that I had already reached the period of womanhood, and the attachment between us could no longer be considered a childish one while any other might be expected to draw forth my father's disapproval, since his wife's idolized son was as far as ever from being a favorite with him. My distress at these proceedings was only equaled by the indignation of my companion in suffering, whom no previous conduct on my father's part had ever angered as this did, nor did the scheme succeed in separating him from me. For while he on every possible occasion avoided the presence of that spy, as he termed Mrs. Ellis, his inventive genius continually contrived opportunities of seeing and conversing with me in her absence. A course of behavior calculated to give still greater coloring to my father's suspicions. 
I am convinced that he was mainly actuated to this course by a deep sense of unkindness and injustice, and a desire to manifest his independence of what he considered unwarrantable tyranny. Nor have I reason to believe that the idea of romance, or even future marriage with myself, entered at all into his calculations. And I, who at that time knew, or at least was influenced by no higher law than his will, lent myself unhesitatingly to a species of petty deception, to clude the vigilance which would have kept us apart. My father, however, as is frequently the case with people of his unsocial temperament and apparent obtuseness of observation, saw more of our manoeuvring than we were aware of, and imagined far more than ever in reality existed. He watched us carefully, and contrary to his usual course of proceeding, forbore for a time any interference. I have since been led to think that he designed to wean us from each other, in a less unnatural manner than that which he had first attempted, by availing himself of the earliest opportunity to transfer his stepson to a situation connected with his own mercantile establishment, either in a foreign country or a distant part of our own, and forbore, until his plans were ripe, to distress and grieve me by giving way to the feelings of annoyance and displeasure which were burning within him. For he was, and had ever been, as kind and indulgent toward his undeserving child, as was consistent with the due maintenance of his authority. Before such a course could be carried out, however, circumstances occurred, and suspicions became aroused, which destroyed one of their victims, and plunged the other. Here Emily's voice failed her. She laid her head upon Gertrude's shoulder, and sobbed bitterly. "'Do not try to tell me the rest, dear Emily,' said Gertrude. "'It is enough for me to know that you are so unhappy.' Do not make yourself wretched by dwelling, for my sake, upon sorrows that are past. Past, replied Emily, recovering her voice and wiping away her tears. No, they are never past. It is only because I am so little wont to speak of them that they overcome me now. Nor am I unhappy, Gertrude. It is but rarely that my peace is shaken. Nor would I now allow my weak nerves to be unstrung by imparting to another the secrets of that never-to-be-forgotten time of trial were it not that, since you know so well how harmoniously and sweetly my life is passing on to its great and eternal awakening, I desire to prove to my darling child the power of that heavenly faith which has turned my darkness into marvelous light, and made afflictions such as mine the blessed harbingers of final joy. But I have not much more to tell, and that shall be in as few words as possible. She then went on, in a firm, though low, and suppressed voice. I was suddenly taken ill with a fever. Mrs. Ellis, whom I had always treated with coldness, and often with disdain, for you must remember I was a spoiled child, nursed me by night and day with a care and devotion which I had no right to expect at her hands. And under her watchful attendance, and the skillful treatment of our good Dr. Jeremy, even then the family physician, I began, after some weeks, to recover. One day, when I was sufficiently well to be up and dressed for several hours at a time, I went for change of air and scene into my father's library, the room next to my own, and there, quite alone, lay half reclining upon the sofa. Mrs. Ellis had gone to attend to household duties, but before she left me, she brought from the adjoining chamber, and placed within my reach, a small table, upon which were arranged various files, glasses, etc., and among them everything which I could possibly require before her return. It was towards the latter part of an afternoon in June, and I lay watching the approach of sunset from an opposite window. 
I was oppressed with a sad sense of loneliness. For during the past six weeks I had enjoyed no society but that of my nurse, together with periodical visits from my father, and felt therefore no common satisfaction and pleasure when my most congenial but now nearly forbidden associate unexpectedly entered the room. He had not seen me since my illness, and after this unusually protracted and painful separation, our meeting was proportionately tender and affectionate. He had all the fire of a hot and ungoverned temper, a woman's depth of feeling, warmth of heart, and sympathizing sweetness of manner. Well do I remember the expression of his noble face, the manly tones of his voice, as seated beside me on the wide couch, he bathed the temples of my aching head with cologne, which he took from the table nearby, at the same time expressing again and again his joy at once more seeing me. How long we had sat thus I cannot tell, but the twilight was deepening in the room, when we were suddenly interrupted by my father, who entered abruptly, came towards us with hasty steps, but stopping short when within a yard or two, folded his arms, and confronted his stepson with such a look of angry contempt as I had never before seen upon his face. The latter rose, and stood before him with a glance of proud defiance. And then ensued a scene which I have neither the wish nor the power to describe. It is sufficient to say that in the double accusation which my excited parent now brought against the object of his wrath, he urged the fact of his seeking, as he expressed it, by mean, base, and contemptible artifice, to win the affections, and with them the expected fortune, of his only child, as a secondary and pardonable crime, compared with his deeper, darker, and but just detected guilt of forgery, forgery of a large amount, and upon his benefactor's name. To this day, so far as I know, said Emily, with feeling, that charge remains uncontradicted. But I did not then, I do not now, and I never can believe it. Whatever were his faults, and his impetuous temper betrayed him into many, of this dark crime, though I have not even his own word in attestation, I dare pronounce him innocent. You cannot wonder, Gertrude, that in my feeble and invalid condition I was hardly capable of realizing at the time, far less of retaining any distinct recollection of the circumstances that followed my father's words. A few dim pictures, however, the last my poor eyes ever beheld, are still engraved upon my memory, and visible to my imagination. My father stood with his back to the light, and from the first moment of his entering the room I never saw his face again. But the countenance of the other, the object of his accusation, illumined as it was by the last rays of the golden sunset, stands ever in the foreground of my recollection. His head was thrown proudly back, conscious but injured innocence proclaimed itself in his clear, calm eye, which shrunk not from the closest scrutiny. His hand was clenched, as if he were vainly striving to repress the passion which proclaimed itself in the compressed lips, the set teeth, the deep and angry indignation which overspread his face. He did not speak. Apparently he could not command voice to do so, but my father continued to upbraid him, in language, no doubt, cutting and severe though I remember not a word of it. It was fearful to watch the working of the young man's face, while he stood there listening to taunts and enduring reproaches, which were no doubt believed by him who uttered them to be just and merited, but which wrought the youth to a degree of frenzy, which it was terrible indeed to witness. Suddenly he took one step forward, slowly lifting the clenched hand which had hitherto hung at his side. I know not whether he might then have intended to call heaven to witness his innocence of the crime with which he was charged, 
or whether he might have designed to strike my father. For I sprang from my seat, prepared to rush between them, and implore them for my sake to desist. But my strength failed me, and with a shriek I sunk back in a fainting fit. Oh, the horror of my awakening! How shall I find words to tell it? And yet I must. Listen, Gertrude. He, the poor, ruined boy, sprung to help me, and maddened by injustice, he knew not what he did. Heaven is my witness. I never blamed him, and if in my agony I uttered words that seemed like a reproach, it was because I was too frantic, and knew not what I said. What? exclaimed Gertrude. He did not— "'No, no, he did not, he did not put out my eyes,' exclaimed Emily. "'It was an accident. "'He reached forward for the cologne which he had just had in his hand. "'There were several bottles, and in his haste he seized one containing a powerful acid "'which Mrs. Ellis had found occasion to use in my sick-room. "'It had a heavy glass stopper. "'And he—his hand was unsteady, and he spilt it all. "'On your eyes?' shrieked Gertrude. "'Emily bowed her head. "'Oh, poor Emily!' cried Gertrude, and wretched, wretched young man. Wretched indeed, ejaculated Emily. Bestow all your pity on him, Gertrude, for his was the harder fate of the two. Oh, Emily, how intense must have been the pain you endured! How could you suffer so and live? Do you mean the pain from my eyes? That was severe indeed, but the mental agony was worse. What became of him? said Gertrude. What did Mr. Graham do? I cannot give you any exact account of what followed. I was in no state to know anything of my father's treatment of his stepson. You can imagine it, however. He banished him from his sight and knowledge forever, and it is easy to believe it was with no added gentleness, since he had now, beside the other crimes imputed to him, been the unhappy cause of his daughter's blindness. And did you never hear from him again? Yes, through the good doctor, who alone knew all the circumstances, I learned, after a long interval of suspense, that he had sailed for South America, and in the hope of once more communicating with the poor exile, and assuring him of my continued love, I rallied from the wretched state of sickness, fever, and blindness, into which I had fallen. The doctor had even some expectation of restoring sight to my eyes, which were in a much more hopeful condition. Several months passed away, and my kind friend, who was most diligent and persevering in his inquiries, having at length learned the actual residence and address of the ill-fated youth, I was commencing, through the aid of Mrs. Ellis, whom pity had now wholly won to my service, a letter of love, and an entreaty for his return, when a fatal seal was put to all my earthly hopes. He died in a foreign land, alone, unnursed, untended, and uncared for, he died of that inhospitable southern disease, which takes the stranger for its victim. And I, on hearing the news of it, sunk back into a more pitiable malady, and, alas for the encouragement the good doctor had held out of my gradual restoration to sight, I wept all his hopes away. Emily paused. Gertrude put her arms around her, and they clung closely to each other. Grief and sorrow made the union between them dearer than ever. I was then, Gertrude, continued Emily, a child of the world, eager for worldly pleasures, and ignorant of any other. For a time, therefore, I dwelt in utter darkness, the darkness of despair. I began to again to feel my body's strength restored, and to look forward to a useless and miserable life. You can form no idea of the utter wretchedness in which my days were passed. Often have I since reproached myself for the misery I must have caused my poor father. 
who, though he never spoke of it, was, I am sure, deeply pained by the recollection of the terrible scenes we had lately gone through, and who would, I am convinced, have given worlds to restore the past. But at last there came a dawn to my seemingly everlasting night. It came in the shape of a minister of Christ, our own dear Mr. Arnold, who opened the eyes of my understanding, lit the lamp of religion in my now softened soul, taught me the way to peace, and led my feeble steps into that blessed rest which even on earth remaineth to the people of God. In the eyes of the world I am still the unfortunate blind girl, one who, by her sad fate, is cut off from every enjoyment. But so great is the awakening I have experienced, that to me it is far otherwise, and I am ready to exclaim, like him who in old time experienced his Saviour's healing power, Once I was blind, but now I see. Gertrude half forgot her own troubles while listening to Emily's sad story, and when the latter laid her hand upon her head, and prayed that she too might be fitted for a patient endurance of trial, and be made stronger and better thereby, she felt her heart penetrated with that deep love and trust which seldom come to us except in the hour of sorrow, and prove that it is through suffering only we are made perfect. End of chapter 40